Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, uh, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, this um, evening's event. Uh, I'm Mick Pierce. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the University Director of the Institute for uh, Policy Research. Um, delighted to be able to welcome Lord Christopher Tugendhat to join us uh, this evening to discuss his new book, The Worm in the Apple, A History of the Conservative Party and Europe from Churchill uh, to Cameron. The way we're going to do this, though, is just to uh, do this as a, as a conversational event. Uh, so I'm going to be asking Christopher questions about his book uh, and then work out questions from yourselves and from uh, watching on Zoom. So um, let's make a start. I want to ask you to start, if I may, Christopher, just by, uh, for the audience's uh, sake, situating you in respect of what you've written by telling us a bit about yourself and your own biography and what came for uh, you to write this book, just so, so we get the... Well, what brought me to write the book was that Peter Hennessy, uh, the contemporary historian, said, and Kenneth Baker, who's a very old friend, both said to me that I probably had the longest continuous memory of Britain and Europe and the Conservative Party of Europe than anybody still alive. Um, well, <laughs> that's quite a daunting thing to be told, uh, but it is actually probably true. I I was on the Financial Times in the 1960s as a journalist when we were negotiating um, the first go-round with uh, Ted Heath negotiating for Harold Macmillan. I was a Member of Parliament in 1970. In 1972, 50 years ago this year, I um, was among the great majority of Conservative MPs who voted for Britain to join by voting for the European Communities Act. I took part in the referendum. I was the European Commissioner at the time of Mrs. Thatcher. Um, I've written a book about Europe in the 1980s. I followed European affairs in, in the House of Lords since then. I was even a director of Eurotom at one point, uh, which is another aspect of Europe. So I have had a, a long continuous involvement and the opportunity to try to make sense of that and to explain how it was that the party that took us in became the party that took us out and why the Conservative Party should have been riven by a civil war over Europe. All that was important to me. And if you take the period from the signatory of the old Gold and Steel community in 1951 to the referendum in 2016, the Conservatives were in power for two-thirds of that time. So what happened in the Conservative Party was not the only story, but it was a very big part of the story. And I think it's a story that is worth telling and that I hope people will find interesting. Right, well, let, let's start then at the beginning of that story. Um, you mentioned the uh, Iron Steel community, European Iron Steel community. Um, so we're back to the post-war Atlee government. Uh, Churchill is out of power, he's lost the election in 1945. Uh, he's in Zurich making big speeches about the future of Europe. He even talks about the United States of Europe. But the Labour government doesn't want to know about Monet's plan, about the Schuman plan. It doesn't want to join these early institutions of the what became the European Union. 
And Churchill's role is often considered rather ambivalent because despite this um, uh, rhetoric, if you like, about the importance of uniting Europe in practice, even when he returns to office, the Conservative Party doesn't join in these uh, early moves. So does that set the tone for the rest of what happens in the Conservative Party? What, 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 what is so important about that period? Well, the first important thing about that period is that Britain has been a member, a founder member, of all the great inst international institutions founded after the war. The IMF, the United Nations, NATO, the World Trade Organization, you name it, we were founder members, except for the European Union. The European Union is the only major international organization of which Britain has ever been a member of which it was not a founder member and set up with a different set of principles, language, imagery. Now, Churchill's role was ambivalent, to put it kindly. I mean, on the one hand, he made these very important speeches in Zurich and in The Hague, talking about reconciliation between France and Germany, talking about the United States of Europe, and giving the impression to his listeners uh, that Britain would play an active part in that. Now, if you read the speeches, there was always a small print. He did always actually make it clear that we would be uh, supporting but not participating. But nonetheless, he built up this great head of steam. And, uh, and, and when the Labour Party, the Labour government, decided not to join the coal and steel community, the Conservatives opposed. The Conservatives said we should take part in the negotiations for the formation of the coal and steel community. And then came the election, 1951 election, and the Conservatives returned to office, and there was still time to make a late entry into the coal and steel community. But Churchill then went back on what he had said before, and we decided not to do so. Now, there were all kinds of reasons, but fundamentally, I think there were two reasons. One, which was to become a recurring theme in Britain's relationship with Europe, was the sovereignty issue and not wanting to have anything to do with something which involved a sacrifice of sovereignty. The second was that basically, given the wartime experience, the British believed that we really were a class apart from the Continentals, um, that we were the ones who'd survived the war, we'd never been occupied, we ended up on the winning side, they'd all been defeated. There was very considerable doubt, not only in British politics, but in the civil service as well, as to whether the Continentals would ever get their act together, and, and, and the belief that the Commonwealth had a big future. Where Monet was so far-sighted, was that he saw that although Germany was occupied by France, Britain, <coughs> the United States and Russia, it would in due course once again become a major economic power. And that there needed to be a, a framework to harness that power and to prevent a recurrence of the rivalries that had given rise to the 1418 war, the 39-45 war, even the 1870-71 war. And, and we lacked that farsightedness um, 
and I'm afraid that Churchill and after him even simply didn't take seriously what was happening on the continent. How far was that uh, uh, a legacy of empire? I mean, Churchill famously talked about three circles for Britain. We had the empire and commonwealth, of which we were a part. We had uh, the English-speaking people, by which he meant primarily our relationship with the United States. Uh, and then the third circle of Europe, and that we were unique in inhabiting all three. But he started always with the empire and commonwealth. Yes, and in that, they, the political leaders reflected the way people thought. I mean, one of the striking things about the Macmillan negotiations um, in the early 60s was that it was quite clear to Harold Macmillan that the key determinant of whether or not Britain would be able to join was whether the Commonwealth would permit it. I mean, that if Bob Menzies in Australia had said no, that would have carried a lot of weight with the British. When Harold Wilson in the 70s had his renegotiation, he was a very clever man, Harold Wilson, and he looked at the points at issue between Britain and the EU, and the one that was really at issue, the one that really needed dealing with was the British budget contribution. But he let that alone because he thought that was far too technical for the British public to understand. Um, and that he thought that the key would be to get better access for the Commonwealth uh, agriculture. And, and he was rewarded. I mean, he, he, he got that from the EU. And then 32 Commonwealth countries had a conference and said, okay, join. And, and that was very important. So right through from the post-war period, even into the 1970s, as far as British political leaders, but also a large chunk of British public opinion was concerned, the Commonwealth, by which they really meant Canada, Australia, New Zealand, up to a point South Africa, was what counted in the Labour Party. The new Commonwealth also had friends, but in in the Conservative Party, it was the old, old white dominions. The counter-argument has been made by historians to the uh, criticism that um, the British government didn't get in early, didn't shape the institutions of what was to become the new, was that in the post-war period, it was a perfectly rational strategy. It was as much as you could to trade with the sterling area. Um, you needed to buy and sell as much as you could in sterling because you, uh, you know, you needed to preserve the dollars you had for uh, uh, access to the American markets for, and so on. Uh, and that uh, you had to, if you like, scarce resources in a period of post-war austerity had to be husbanded very carefully. And therefore, keeping that kind of ties and connections to what had previous, previously been imperial preference, the sterling area, was, was an important strategy for the United Kingdom. That was certainly the view of, uh, I think, of Alan Millward, you know, the, the, the economic historian who wrote the first official history of those negotiations of entry to the Union. I think that was a perfectly rational approach. I think it's also important to remember the influence of the war. You know, we always say we stood alone. We didn't actually stand alone. We had the Commonwealth standing with us. Um, and that is a very important factor. There is that. But I think people overlooked the fact that the Commonwealth itself was feeling its oats, and that um, Australia in particular, but Canada and New Zealand as well, wanted to develop 
you know, the old deal that Britain provide the manufactured goods and they provide the agricultural goods um, was getting out of date. These countries, Australia particularly, wanted to develop an industrial base of their own. They wanted to um, trade more widely than within the Commonwealth. Uh, they wanted to diversify their uh, financial resources. And I, I mentioned in the book that the way in which Harold Macmillan found de dealing with the Australians wasn't always as, uh, as cozy an operation as he had, had thought. I remember Roy Jenkins telling me once how when he was Chancellor how tough the um, Australians were over the sterling balances. So it was a perfectly rational position, but far-sighted people, Oliver Franks, I quote there, saying to Peter Thornycroft in the 1950s, do you still believe in all this imperial preference nonsense? And Oliver Franks, who'd been ambassador in Washington and chairman of Lloyd's Bank, and there were far-sighted people who saw that the Commonwealth was a wasting asset in that sense, and that in terms of the big markets, the one that was closest to us uh, was the one that mattered. And that, in the event, was what tilted Harold Macmillan to apply to Joy. Yeah, so let, let's just um, take, a, take the story on from that point then. So Macmillan has become prime minister. You know, he's won a, a resounding election victory. Um, what then changes uh, the sort of Conservative Party leadership view? We're talking about the leadership now rather than the party at large? Two things. One, an awareness that the Continentals were overtaking us economically. Um, and it was especially galling to see West Germany becoming a, a bigger economy than, than Britain. But what, you only have to look at the growth figures of that period to see that we were falling behind. That was one factor. Another factor, which certainly weighed very much with our McMillan, was the sense that we would lose our position as one of the big three, the Soviet Union, the United States, and the United Kingdom. It does sound very strange to put that way now, but, but the big three. And, and he was afraid that a new European empire um, under France at that time, but in due course under Germany, would would push us to one side. Something which had a very big impact on him was a summit meeting that was supposed to take place in Paris in the early 60s. And he, Macmillan had devoted a lot of time to this and he thought it would become one of a series of summit meetings which would be his legacy to the world as a, as a peacekeeper. But the summit was aborted because an American spy plane was shot down over Russia. And Khrushchev wouldn't agree to go ahead with the summit unless Eisenhower apologized, and Eisenhower wouldn't apologize. And, and this brought home to Macmillan, and I mentioned it in the book, his private secretary, though Philip de Zulueta, though wrote very, very eloquently on it, that we no longer had the clout that if 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 Eisenhower and Khrushchev wouldn't agree to a summit, there was nothing we could do about it. And that brought home to Macmillan that, you know, we, we were declining. And both for both Harold Macmillan and Harold Wilson, one of the attractions of Europe 
was that they thought it would provide a new basis of power. Some of you here may recall, uh, not many of you will remember, but you may recall Dean Acheson saying that Britain had lost an empire, had not yet found a road. And, and many of us believed, and Howard Macmillan, and I think Howard Wilson too, to some extent, believed that Europe would provide that road. Now, another, and this is a really critical point, another um, issue that uh, arises when Macmillan then decides to seek entry before de Gaulle's veto, uh, when it's discussed in the cabinet, and Macmillan does a lot of work to bring the cabinet behind the decision to enter, but he asks the Lord Chancellor, Maxwell Fife, later like Lord Kilmuir, uh, for advice, and Kilmuir says there is an, a loss of sovereignty, there is a transfer of sovereignty, and it should be brought out into the open now because otherwise those who are opposed to the whole idea of joining the community will certainly seize on this transfer of sovereignty with more damaging effects later on. And one of the big things that you then remark upon in the book then is that because that issue of sovereignty was never openly aired, this is true of the second and indeed Heath's application to join, that the question it comes back as, as it were sort of returns as a sort of repressed question uh, later on. It, it doesn't go away and it comes back later with greater damage. I think that's a very important point. I mean, I was a great admirer of Ted Heath and I, I supported him and I liked him. And it was rather painful for me to have to criticise him. But I, I think that obfuscating the, the full implications of joining the EU was a great mistake. But older members of the audience here will recall often hearing people saying, I voted to join a common market, not to join a political enterprise. And I think that if, if Ted Heath had been frank at the beginning about what the implications were and argued it out, that would have made a, a big difference in the long term. And, and when Mrs. Thatcher, who supported British membership and so forth at the beginning, when she became fully aware of the implications of membership, she too felt that, that you know, we joined somewhat under false pretenses. And, and I think that was a, a, a terrible, a terrible mistake. And in 1975, at the time of the referendum, the argument on sovereignty could have been won. The people who were banging on about it, Tony Benn, Enoch Powell, weren't people who were trusted. What people were worried about was economics um, uh, 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 and getting our economy more competitive and making the EU a sort of um, political end of NATO. I mean, the, the whole issue of, of defense against communism and the Soviet Union. And if Ted Teeth had been, and Roy Jenkins too, had been frank about the implications of sovereignty, I think this sense of people being misled would not have grown up. And I think the whole business in the Conservative Party of saying that there's somehow something not legitimate about all this sovereignty business would have been, would have perhaps been killed at, at the outset. I think it was a terrible error. What about the, um, the Conservative Party in the country at this time? So uh, the, the grassroots constituency associations, the Conservative Party's think tanks and education institutions. Um, I mean, this is a period where leaders uh, emerge from sort of backroom 
discussions, they're not elected directly by the members. Um, where is the is the Conservative Party membership in the 60s and 70s on the question of Hamilton? I think the Conservative Party membership on the issue was following the leader, not with tremendous enthusiasm, but if the leadership think it's the right thing to do, uh, then that is what we're going to do. But I don't think it was ever a love affair. I mean, it wasn't as it was in France or Germany or the Netherlands. There wasn't this underlying sense that this was something which would preserve peace, that this was an enterprise which was worth doing in its own right. It was a utilitarian, transactional relationship. And that for as long as the leadership were in favor of it, then so were the troops. But if, if, if the leadership turned, it was always quite likely that the troops would, would turn. And so when he brings the in-principle vote to the House of Commons for the deal that he struck, Pompidou has allowed him to, the French president has allowed the British application to go through, doesn't veto it. Heath comes back, and only what, something in, in the 30s or so, 37, I think, Conservative MPs vote against? Yes. And they're a minority, but nonetheless quite a significant minority. And at the party conferences, you always got a big majority for the leadership, which you always did at Conservative conferences. But that, that didn't disguise the fact that People were in favour of it because that was the thing to be in favour of, but it, it wasn't a, a love affair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, so whilst for Heath it clearly was, I mean, one of the things yes. you, you bring out in your book very strongly is his own deep personal yes. and emotional commitment to the European project. Um, I think after he wins that vote, he goes up to the number 10, uh, yes. draw, plays on his clavicle, you know, plays a, a bark few, I can't remember what it is, but, uh, um, you know, he was, he, he was known for that kind of intellectual as well as emotional commitment to Europe. Yes, I mean, he did believe in it in the way that they did on the continent, but, you know, he, Ted Heath had been to the Nuremberg rallies before the war, <coughs> he travelled in Germany, he'd seen the devastation in Germany after the war, he had a much more cool, cool-headed idea of the special relationship than, than many people. He didn't have too many illusions about the Americans. And the, Ted Heath's whole approach was much more similar to that of people on the continent. Yes, yes. So um, uh, Heath loses the two elections in 1974, is replaced by Thatcher. Um, she nonetheless campaigns when Harold Wilson uh, renegotiates, brings it back for a referendum. She nonetheless campaigns to uh, to stay or to to remain on the in the uh, uh, European communities as it was then, um, and and still at that point, opposition within the Conservative Party doesn't reach the sort of leadership card, does it? Uh, the leadership is still in favour of staying in. Yes, I mean, Mrs. Thatcher came to power. I recount in the book how shortly before she came to power, when I was a commissioner, she came over to Brussels, and. She was, of course, very well briefed and knew what was what. But she made it quite clear that this wasn't a particular interest of hers. She made it clear to me that she thought that other people would have to deal with Europe because she would be too busy doing the British economy. It was something she was in favour of. Um, she saw it as good for the economy. She was in favour of free trade, in favour of competition. 
Uh, she thought it would strengthen uh, NATO. Um, so you know, she she was very happy to go a lot along with it, and, and therefore um, the party was too. And so uh, then in the, in the chapters where you where you discuss the Thatcher premiership and her legacy, there's no single event that changes uh, her sort of perception on. I mean, there are some important moments we can come to those, but there's no single event, is there? It's a sort of process over time where she becomes more Eurosceptic and the party, its MPs and others, steadily become more Eurosceptic. I mean, something in the 80s changes quite radically, doesn't it? Because yes. by the time we get to Maastricht, it's a very different story. I mean, you have to distinguish between Thatcher as Prime Minister and Thatcher as ex-Prime Minister. Uh, Thatcher as Prime Minister often used to rail against the unreasonable nature of the Continentals and how different they were from us. And, also, there was the budget problem, which I'll say a word about. But the Thatcher as Prime Minister never called into question British membership. It was Thatcher as the ex-Prime Minister who, who did so. Where there was a very big mistake when she became Prime Minister, and this was not her mistake, um, that there was a British budget problem. We were one of the poorest countries in the European Union. We were the second largest contributor to the budget. We were in due course become the largest. There was a problem, it needed sorting out. And basically, President Giscard of France and Chancellor Schmidt of Germany should have taken her on one side and said, listen, there's a problem and we'll, we'll deal with it and put it behind us. And instead, they put her up against a wall and made her fight for it. And this was partly because they didn't take her seriously as a woman. It was partly because they saw what was happening in London, where Geoffrey Howe's budget was very unpopular, where it was widely believed that she wouldn't last for very long. Um, and it was a number of factors. But the result was that there was this big battle over the budget. And this in, embedded in the minds of the British people and of the British media the sense of Britain's position in Europe being a conflictual one, the us against them, one against however many, one against eight, first of all, one against nine, due course, rather than being a continuous negotiation in which alliances change. Now, Britain played a constructive role in Europe. I mean, we were very constructive about the, um, about the formation of the single market. We were very constructive about enlargement in her famous Bruges speech, which is often taken as being an anti-European speech and was in some respect. Mrs. Thatcher looked forward to the enlargement to the East in a very, a very imaginative fashion. But the result of that row and then of Delors, the commission, the commission president, making the mistake of appealing over her head to the TUC Congress over social Europe in inverted commas, did set the Conservative Party's teeth very much on edge. And when Mrs. Thatcher fell, as I think people who remember that, that period will agree with me, she fell primarily because of the poll tax. But although the poll tax was the primary reason why she fell, it was very much caught up 
with disagreements with her colleagues over Europe and her saying in the House of Commons, no, no, no to various proposals. And so her fall became very much caught up with how you identified over Europe. And when she was in opposition, well, when she was on the back benches, she then made Europe a big issue. And John Major went to Maastricht and he signed an agreement that was universally welcomed in this country, um, universally applauded, um, but she was undermining him um, all the time. And she, at that point, launched the demand for a referendum, initially a referendum over the single currency, but the referendum became the leitmotif of the sceptical side of the Conservative Party. I think it's probably also worth saying that, uh, you know, the, the, the big divisions in her government towards the end of the 80s were about Britain's membership of the exchange rate mechanism. Yes. Norston Howe uh, and later, later Major wanting Britain to join the Yes. Now, I mean, it wasn't for different reasons. Nigel Lawson wanted to join the European single currency, not because he wanted Britain, sorry, the exchange rate mechanism, excuse me. Now, Nigel Lawson wanted us to join the exchange rate mechanism, not because he wanted to join the single currency, but because he thought it would be effective at bearing down on inflation, as indeed it was. Geoffrey Howe was much more open to the idea of joining the single currency. Now, the departure of Britain from the exchange rate mechanism, Black Wednesday, was of course a tremendous humiliation and seen by many people as being a sort of economic equivalent of serious. But what is often forgotten is that, I haven't now got the fig, uh, figures at my fingertips, but the rate of inflation was enormously reduced by our period in the exchange rate mechanism. And on the basis of that, first Norman Lamont, and then Ken Clark were able to construct an extremely successful economic policy. So that by the time we, that we came to the 1997 election, which of course Labour won, but by that time Britain had for several years been the most successful economy in Europe, more successful than the French and the Germans. And I personally think that our period in the exchange rate mechanism contributed to that. Yes, I mean, it's rather interesting, actually, that you, you cite Macmillan early on suggesting to de Gaulle that we could join a common monetary policy. Yes. Um, uh, which, uh, well, when, I, when we were by... talking earlier about Ted Heath being less than frank with the British people about the implications of joining the EU, it is worth remembering that when Harold Macmillan was having his big discussion with General de Gaulle before General de Gaulle's veto, one of the enticements he held out to the general was that if Britain joined, um, we would be able to form the basis for a single currency. I'm not sure that, that particularly appealed to General de Gaulle, but that's <laughs> another matter. Um, it, it, it's an important issue, though, of course, uh, towards the end of the 1980s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, Chancellor Kohl wants to reintegrate Germany. Uh, bring East and West back together. The price for that for the French is a single currency. That's a deal over which Britain actually has has to sort of, as it were, accept. It becomes a fait accompli, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and that's something that Thatcher resents, I think, very strongly. Indeed. I mean, because for her, 
between meteorology. So eye to eye on Germany, neither of them wanted to unite Germany. Neither of them wanted to see Germany as the most powerful country in Europe. But Mitterrand understood the inevitability of it, that this was the price, if you like, of winning the Cold War. And the best thing to do, he thought, as Monet and co had thought in the, in the 50s, was to harness Germany to Europe, to bind Germany to Europe. There's an apocryphal story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but there's an apocryphal story that, that Mitterrand said that you can have the whole of Germany so long as I can have half the Deutschmark. So for him, that was a, a deal. Margaret Thatcher not only disliked the idea of a united Germany, she disliked the idea of a single currency as well. So that for her, the combination of a united Germany and a single currency made the whole thing look a great deal less attractive. <laughs> so, so as you say, um, uh, Major does the deal at Master, it comes back, but then after the 1992 election, that then becomes an incredibly divisive piece of legislation. Uh, and we see for the probably for the first time uh, just how sort of visceral the opposition to the European project is in sections of the Conservative Party. Yes, and I think something which is important to bear in mind here, which people who don't follow politics would find, might perhaps miss, is that the tone of the leader sets the tone of the party. And therefore, during the period that Mrs. Thatcher was, was Prime Minister, although she was perfectly content to remain in the European Union, there was this com combative approach. And therefore, the constituency associations were selecting MPs who took their tune from her. They took a combative approach. Um, and the, the, the complexion of the Conservative Party uh, in the elections in, in the 1980s, early 1990s, moved steadily in a more skeptical um, direction. Uh, and that was something with which John Major had to cope. Now, again, there was a, a tragic mistake. John Major went to Maastricht, he signed a deal which was universally applauded in this country, which I, I thought was a very good deal. Um, and if it had been put through the House of Commons before the 1992 election, it would have got through the House of Commons without any great difficulty. But it was decided by the business managers that um, there was no need to do it before the election. It was contentious, why bother? Labour would probably win the election anyway. And if they didn't, um, then we would be back. And so it was put off until after the 1992 election. And then came the Danish referendum, and the Danes rejected Maastricht um, temporarily. And that suddenly alerted to people that there was nothing inevitable about the progress of this legislation. And you had the terrible disputes within the party over the Maastricht bill. And then, as we've already discussed, there was Black Wednesday. And it was at that point, I think, that the the heart of the Conservative Party, the guts of the Conservative Party, really turned against Europe. Vernon Bogdaner uses a, a very vivid phrase when he says that the, Europe was delegitimized within the Conservative Party. And it, it then enters this period of opposition, 
where it's in the wilderness. Uh, and, and Labour, having been uh, a, a Eurosceptic party in the early 1980s, has become much more pro-European. John Smith, Tony Blair, both pro-European leaders of the Labour Party. Uh, and your tale takes us through this rather sort of sorry tale of the Conservatives in opposition of electing different leaders who have to manage their own past party antagonisms, but the real action then is somewhere else. And in, in, in those chapters, the real action is in two ways. One is the rise of UKIP and its impact on the Conservative Party, its success of European parliamentary elections and the impact that has. Uh, and the other is the decision of the Labour government uh, in 2004 to allow uh, immediate entry to its labour markets from the so-called A8 countries of Eastern Europe who are acceding to the European Union that uh, Polish and other nationals can work in the British labour market. And these are the sort of two big things that happen in this period, I think, um, that then determine much of the course of what comes next. Yes, I mean, the fact that Labour was pro, or the Labour government uh, was pro, meant that therefore being anti-Europe in a sense came naturally. But, but also, during this period, the Conservatives were in opposition with a small parliamentary party, first of all with William Hague, then with Ian Duncan Smith, two very unimpressive leaders at, at the time, and they tended to go back to their comfort blanket, what Mrs. Thatcher, where Mrs. Thatcher was. So speaking against Europe, speaking for free markets, going back, leaving all the new stuff about social policy and, and the environment and all the rest of it to Tony Blair. And, and so they were, were going back into this sort of ghetto. And there they had to compete with UKIP. And although UKIP never did very well in parliamentary elections. It did very well in European elections, but it didn't do well in parliamentary elections. UKIP set the terms of the debate on the right over, over Europe. UKIP saw Europe as a problem to be solved by getting out. The Conservatives were arguing that it was a problem to be managed by dragging your feet. And, and that, I think, had a very, very deleterious effect. And then came the whole business in 2004, when the former communist countries entered the European Union. And there were, of course, good political reasons for welcoming them. Mrs. Thatcher had always been a supporter of their entry. As we were supporters, there was a good political reason for welcoming their citizens. But the number of their citizens who came here far exceeded what was expected. And suddenly, the issue of Europe and the issue of immigration became linked, and that became a very toxic um, mixture, and particularly toxic for David Cameron, because he was hooked on a pledge which he'd made when he became leader in 2005, that he would reduce immigration um, to the tens of thousands, which, you know, was thrown back at him time and time again, that the linking of immigration and Europe was a very toxic one. But you don't, in the book, you don't criticise him for calling the referendum, do you? I mean, you, you, re you make reference to Andrew Mitchell, who'd been the chief whip, because of the chief whip saying, you shouldn't have a national referendum on what is essentially a question of party concerns. But nonetheless, uh, uh, in the book seems to sort of recognise that this issue needed airing in the country, that a yes. in some sense was inevitable. I mean, here I'm talking with 
the wisdom of hindsight, or at any rate, the benefit of hindsight. Uh, as I said a moment or two ago, you had the demand for a referendum over the single currency. Well, that never took place because we never applied to join the single currency. Then you had the promise of Blair um, and the leader of the opposition that there would be a referendum over the so-called European constitution. Now, with hindsight, I think there should have been. Blair promised that there would be. Um, but because France and the Netherlands voted against it, he said there's no point in having one because it's never going to happen. Well, that was true. But Luxembourg still went ahead and had one. And the Luxembourgers voted for the constitution. Didn't make any difference, but they had their, their, their moment in court. We would have voted against having the constitution. It wouldn't have made any difference. But people would have felt that they weren't on a, a one-way escalator to integration. People would have felt, I think, that they were having a say. Then came the so-called Lisbon Treaty, and Gordon Brown uh, rather reluctantly had to adopt that, and he promised a referendum, and so did David Cameron. David Cameron entered the caveat that if by the time the Conservatives had won the election, everybody had ratified it, then we wouldn't have a referendum because it would be too late, which is exactly what happened. But there was another promise for a referendum. And then there were promises by several different parties, including the Lib Dems in their 2010 uh, election manifesto, that any significant transfer of power would require a referendum. So there was this constant build-up of expectations which were disappointing over a referendum. And I think Cameron had to cope with that. And also, he had to cope with the fact that UKIP was pulling the Conservative Party further and further to the right, not only on the European issue, but on other issues like same-sex marriage, uh, which he was in favour of, but most of the membership were not, um, and uh, climate change and that sort of thing. And he felt that the Conservative Party was being pulled to the right by, by UKIP, unless he, he tackled the referendum issue, um, he would find the ground shifting beneath his feet. And of course, he thought he could win. And I mean, an important point about David Cameron is that he always did win until he lost. I mean, he, he became leader of the Conservative Party at a very young age. Um, he won an election, uh, he, he half won an election in 2010, but nobody thought he could win. He was instrumental in winning the Scottish referendum was touch and go. He won the majority in 2015. He, he, born to rule, silver spoon, all the rest of it. And, and I think he thought that he, he could pull this one off, off too. Uh, and that then he put it behind us and be able to settle the Conservative Party down uh, within Europe. And actually, I mean, his deal he brought back was a very good deal. It did nothing for immigration, which was what, what bothered people. But in terms of getting an absolutely explicit um, agreement that we were not bound by ever closer union, that was something which Mrs. Thatcher would have given her eye teeth for. He also got absolutely specific 
opt-outs from a single currency, not in the sense, or not just in the sense that we didn't have to join, um, but in the sense that we were not responsible for supporting it or for bailing it out. These were very important concessions. And had he won the referendum, I think they would have gone a fair measure towards meeting Kilmuir's point uh, and settling the anxieties that had raised and might well have, have enabled us to start all over again. But he wasn't able to do anything about immigration, and that was what, of course, undid him. And, and of course, in addition to the immigration issue, you say three things were decisive uh, in the referendum. One was that there was some big money coming in behind Euroscepticism. There were uh, donors to the cause. We put a lot of money, Stuart Wiener and the like. Uh, the second was that the uh, Conservative press that ordinarily would have supported a Conservative Prime Minister and attacked the Labour Party, instead uh, attacked the Conservative leadership and uh, supported leaving the European Union. It was a big change. Uh, and the third was um, that in sharp contrast to 1975, uh, the Leave campaign had two, at least two big figures from the mainstream of the party, as it were, yes. Michael Grove and, of course, Boris Johnson. And I suppose how far was Johnson in particular decisive? Well, I'm sorry to say, I think he was pretty decisive. I mean, I think that if it had been like 1975, when you had really respectable mainline figures, Ted Heath and uh, Roy Jenkins on one side, and rather controversial, untrusted figures um, on the other, Tony Benn, Enoch Powell, etc. That would have been one thing, but Farage not only ran a brilliant campaign in bringing the referendum about, but he did not have to lead the campaign. I mean, I think that if Farage had been the face of the face of Leave, I think Cameron would have won. But it was the fact that the Conservatives, the Conservative Party, provided the leadership of both the Remain and the Leave campaign that was important that you had two heavyweight conservative figures with the conservative press behind them on the Leave side. And Cameron had never spoken up about Europe. He'd never ruled the pitch for Europe. Um, he'd always gone, and he agrees in his memoirs, uh, that the change of attitude uh, was a bit of a gear change, I think is the word he uses. Whereas Johnson and Gove were in line with the way in which the part of the Conservative Party had been moving for some time, for some years before that. Now, you, you, you end on a, on, a, on a note of optimism, and I, I want to come back to that before we end, but I, I'm conscious of the time. I want to give a chance to people to ask questions. Um, and I know Sophie probably got some on there for me to, to look at as well. But are there any questions from folks in the audience first, just to open up to Christopher? And um, if not, I can go on, online and see what's on the Q&A. Um, but very, very happy to give people a chance to, often the way with, with these things, with Q&A, that uh, you don't get a, a first question from the audience. Um, let me then say one, Christopher, which is uh, Ukraine. Uh, we were talking earlier that, um, I mean, it now seemed, or would certainly seem, uh, puerile uh, to be indulging concerns about the Northern Irish Protocol in particular, in the context of what's happening in um, do you think that, in a way, um, 
the, the magnitude of events on uh, the continent are such that um, a that the conservative government has better to unite with the rest of the European Union as well as with others, and also that questions about our relationship to Europe and particularly the protocol have to take a back seat. They are simply second order questions compared with what is happening. Basically, I do. Uh, I mean, the, the divorce was bound to lead to bitterness on both sides, and, and it was more bitter than it need have been for all kinds of reasons. But Ukraine is such a dreadful thing, I mean, it's sort of a threat to all of us that there's no issue of principle about working closely with the EU over Ukraine. Um, I mean, before Ukraine, there was issues of principle on in sections of the Conservative Party, well, there still are sections about working closely with the Europeans. But faced with the Russian threat in Ukraine, it's quite clear that we've got to cooperate together. It's also quite clear that Britain brings a great deal to the party, as we've shown over our intelligence contribution and the weapons we provided to the Ukrainians and so forth, that any sensible European response has to involve the United Kingdom. So instead of arguing about whether we should be talking to the Europeans or arguing about what sort of structures would be appropriate or arguing about you don't want to talk to them because that's a step towards going back, this crisis is bringing us together and hopefully as a result of, of talking to each other and working together on this, it'll make it less difficult for us to put together a more harmonious relationship when the, 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 the worst of the Ukraine crisis is, is over. May that happen. I've got a couple of questions uh, here. The first one uh, from Duncan McGuigan. Uh, do you think that the absence of the Christian Democratic Party had a critical effect on the political alienation of the UK from the EU, which I take to mean that, you know, the Conservative Party here was never a Christian Democratic Party in the mould of pure continental Christian Democratic parties that had a, a commitment to the European project at their kind of core. Well, I would put it slightly differently. I mean, we don't have a Christian Democratic Party, and that it's a very, the idea is a very alien one. But of course, the Conservative Party should have played a much more prominent role in the European People's Party that brings together the Christian Democrats. And one of Cameron's great mistakes in when he became leader was to leave the European People's Party. The European People's Party is a network of political parties, some in government, some in opposition. It's where people from prime ministers down to the newest recruit in the youth wing meet, make friends, exchange ideas. It, it's, it's a network. And the fact that the Conservatives excluded themselves from that network was, I think, very damaging. And there were two occasions when it actually hit Cameron in the face. I mean, one was when he imposed the only time the British have imposed a veto at, at, at one point in the single currency discussions. And he found that instead of, of stopping the, the agreement, which he thought he could stop, Sarkozy and, and Merkel had cooked up a scheme in the European People's Party that enabled them to bypass it. If he'd been in the European People's Party, he might have been aware of that. And then his hostility to Juncker. He relied on Mrs. Merkel to stop Juncker 
He thought she behaved with bad faith when she didn't. But she didn't behave with bad faith. She couldn't do it. She was overruled within the, within the EPP. If he'd been in the EPP, he would have understood that he had to find a different way of, of operating. A couple more questions. So uh, the first one from Gail, Gail Kent, um, which really touches on the point I mentioned, the, the final sentence in your book is that you hope that now that Britain is on its own, the Conservative Party will contribute to the creation of a new, close, harmonious and mutually advantageous relationship with the EU and its member states. And Gail's asking the question, you know, uh, can uh, the Conservative Party concentrate on working well with Europe or will the venom continue? And it goes back to the point you're making about Ukraine earlier. I mean, do, do you think that, you know, Ukraine aside, that, that it will settle down into something more constructive or at least mature in some way? Yes, I do. Uh, the European Union is our biggest trading partner. It's our neighbour. We're affected by everything that happens there. And they are affected by us. I mean, it's important to remember that we may be in the same position vis-a-vis -vis the European Union as, say, Canada and Mexico is towards the United States. But they, for the first time, are confronted with a significantly large country that is able to pursue independent policies. And we saw over the vaccine rollout at the beginning of, of 2021, that if Britain does manage to, I mean, big if, but if Britain does manage to do something more effectively and differently than the EU, that represents a considerable challenge for the EU. One of the most difficult things for the EU is keeping all its members in line. In the past, there wasn't, as it were, an alternative outside that people could look at. There is an alternative outside now that people can look at. So that both Britain and, uh, and the EU are facing a new situation, but it's so overwhelmingly in their interests that they should find frameworks within which to discuss and to deal, not necessarily always to agree, but to work around issues where there isn't agreement and to work together where there is. And, and the bitterness of the divorce was very damaging and hopefully one small mercy out of the horrors of Ukraine is that it might make it easier for us to establish a new relationship. Um, I've got a, uh, another question here from Mike Bolt, which is, um, uh, about the nature of the pressure that UKIP had exerted on the Conservative Party in the 2010s. Um, uh, and he asked, do you see this as about, more about ideas or is it, elect is it their electoral success that, that um, brings a pressure? And I think that also raises a question. It's a perennial, as you know, amongst historians of the Conservative Party, to debate whether it is a party of ideas and ideology or whether it's just a party of brute power, whether it's in John Stuart Mill's phrase, you know, the stupid party. Um, that doesn't really do ideas and just does power. Um, and, and I suppose Mike's point comes to that, because if UKIP and others, if Eurosceptic Euro ideas were actually influential in the Conservative Party, its thinkers, its think tanks, its MPs, its ministers and so on, and it wasn't simply about brute power, then those ideas you might have to be dislodged. Um, you know, to come into the future relationship, a new set of ideas will be developing. Um, if it was just electoral, then perhaps it'll pass as the electoral threat has passed? It was both. I mean, UKIP was a challenge to the Conservative Party, above all, 
but also on a, a range of social issues, the issues with which the Conservative Party had been identified in, in opposition uh, and which Cameron wanted to give up. I mean, Cameron wanted to modernise the party on climate change and the environment, on social policy, on uh, gay rights and same-sex marriage and things of that nature. And UKIP kept the standard flying for all those things. And this did provide, this did provide um, a, an attractive force for some Conservative um, members. And also, Conservative MPs were very much aware that there were people in their associations who were attracted to UKIP. And it wasn't that they were necessarily so numerous, but that if they left the Conservative Association and joined UKIP, it would make it much harder for them to withstand the Labour or the Lib Dem challenge. And that although UKIP didn't get many votes in Parliament, there were quite a lot of constituencies where the UKIP vote was quite important as between the late Conservative majority and the Labour or Lib Dem challenger. So, and then, of course, the European elections. And the European elections enabled UKIP to show that it did appeal to the hearts and minds mm. of a significant body of the people. But I think it's not tremendously pleasant for people like me, but I, 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 I think what one has to recognise is that what might be termed the UKIP wing of the Conservative Party won when Johnson became leader. But it is also important to recognise that when you have a party as habituated to civil war as the Conservative Party has become, the fact that somebody has won does not necessarily mean that it is enduring. And the Conservative Party is perfectly capable of changing it back again or in a different direction in, in response to events uh, and, and in response to ideas. Now, I think if we can see that the, one of the difficulties for the Conservative Party at the moment um, is that it's hooked on the idea of low tax, um, small state. Well, that's all very well, and all Conservatives are in favour of low tax, small state, but that's not always possible. And we are in a situation now, not unlike the post-war period, um, where with COVID and climate change and demography and levelling up, um, it's a bit difficult to do all that with a small state and, and low taxes. And, and the pressure of events and the need to win elections. I mean, the great thing about the Conservative Party, as Nick said a few moments ago, is that it doesn't, on the whole, have fixed principles. And that if, if ideas turn out to be unattractive to the nation as a whole, the Conservative Party generally changes its ideas and its personnel. Look, before I come to later, there's a very uh, a related question to this from Peter Hopwood, which says, uh, if you look at what's happening in the US and to the Republican Party in the US, you know, uh, where, you, where you see a very, very big shift in the character of that party, uh, you know, does that give Conservatives pause for thought? Um, I mean, it, Peter talks about its relationship to Europe, but pause for thought more widely, perhaps, about what happens to that kind of style of leadership if you follow that path. 
Yes, I think it does. I mean, I, I, I mean, putting aside Ukraine now for the moment, but I mean, if you, if you look at what's happened in the Republican Party, if you look at some of the pressures in French politics, which are now in abeyance because of, of Ukraine, if you look at what's ha happening here, there, on a number of issues, the center of gravity of political discussion, not necessarily of political votes, but of political discussion, has shifted in a, a rightward direction. And, and I, although each country is unique and each country has its own issues, I think there are points in common between what's happened in the Republican Party and what's happened in the Conservative Party. So, so on, the, on the first point, I think, I mean, you, you, you mentioned in the book, you know, that um, uh, the, the, the leavers had no real plan yes, for yes. what leaving would mean. Brexit means Brexit, in the famous yes. phrase, you know. Uh, and, and, and as Ada says, you know, does that mean that actually the deal that the United Kingdom got was a, was a, what, was a poor one whose costs are yet, not yet as apparent to us as they might be? Yes, I think, I mean, I think the history, I think in the light of of the history, people, the future historians won't be so surprised that we decided to leave. What I think will surprise them is that we decided to leave with so little preparation and so little forethought. And the fact that the people who were advocating Brexit um, had nothing to say about our trading relationships or our diplomatic relationships, or even about the Northern Ireland frontier. I mean, after the Northern Ireland frontier is a matter of domestic politics. And, and the fact that the Northern Ireland frontier should have come as such a surprise to everybody shows the extraordinary lack of, of preparation. And, and I think that many people on the continent were not so surprised that Britain's heart was in it, what they were surprised that Brit was that Britain's head was so unprepared. Come to the party. I simply how did you get the title? Sorry? How, uh, where did you get the title from? The oh. <laughs> well, it came to me in a flash and I couldn't give it up because I liked it so much. <laughs> but basically, what the worm in the apple was, as I explained on the first page of the book, was the way in which while the 
externality of Britain's relationship with Europe remained the same. Its legitimacy was eaten away from within. And it was the way in which opinion within the Conservative Party and public opinion turned against the European idea that corroded it from within and eventually left a shell. Uh, that, that's the idea of it. And I guess my overarching question is, do we need a change of government in order for this optimism to occur? Not because of what Labour might do, but because of the rethinking that would go on in the Conservative Party. Because what you see at the moment is that picking up the point. I mean, we have our next door neighbour, Lisa Moore, who's now in charge of the benefits of Brexit. Well, I think that if that's the if that's as far as we've gone, it's not very um, not very convincing that there are benefits. Um, and you raised the point about, and I found this intriguing, you raised the point about the vaccine and the administration of the vaccine. That's really interesting because what it suggests is, I mean, Europeans up their game and footed it with us within six months or so. So the question is, was it because of what we've done that they went, oh, we need to up our game here? In other words, was there a bit of grit in the wheel because of a, the kind of implicit competition of all the Well, I, I don't know, but I think the fact that Britain, who everybody rather written off because of Brexit, was able to do something so effectively, yeah. put enormous pressure um, on the Commission and on the, the governments of the member states. And I mean, given the necessarily very cumbersome way in which the European Union works. It's by no means impossible to envisage other situations in which Britain will turn out to be nimbler. If it should turn out, if, if it should turn out that the British economy performs at least as well as, let us say, the French and the Italian and the Spanish, and that they have higher levels of unemployment because of Eurozone policies, that's going to put pressure on the central bank, which wouldn't have existed before. That Britain is, you know, Mrs. Thatcher used to say there is no alternative, Tina. Um, to some extent, Britain is the Tina, well, is, is, the, is the alternative <laughs> now. And I'm not saying any of this will happen, but I'm saying it could happen. Now, as to the reconstituting the relationship, I think to my, you know, we lost the battle. Uh, and I, I don't think there's any point in talking about going back because first of all, there isn't going to be a significant will in this country to go back, it'll remain divisive. And secondly, I really don't think that the member states of the European Union <laughs> want to go through the whole business of a negotiation with Britain. And if they did, we wouldn't get terms anything like as good as the ones that we had before. And therefore it would be seen as a defeat. So we're condemned to, to talk, not to agree, but we're condemned to 
be in a state of continuous negotiation in, in the way that the, the Swiss, for instance, are. And, and whether that would, you know, it, it might have been the case that without Ukraine, you could say that this government couldn't do it. You need a Labour government or you need a different sort of Conservative government. Um, now, perhaps with, with Ukraine, it might be less difficult. Um, so, so, well, let's just let's end the discussion on this point then. So you, you started with the foresight, the strategic foresight of Monet. You mentioned Mitterrand's foresight in seeing what the collapse of the Berlin Wall would mean. Do you, do you think that in 50 years time, we will still be outside the European Union, an independent United Kingdom? I would be very surprised if we ever rejoin the European Union. But the way in which the European Union evolves remains to be seen. And, and the European Union is now in quite a difficult position because it, it find, you know, you've got the countries of the Balkans that want to join, what on earth is going to happen to Ukraine? The idea of, of, of a hard call and everybody agreeing to the same thing, that, that what Cameron negotiated uh, of a much looser relationship, not, not um, committed to ever close union, we may well find the European Union evolving in a much more tiered fashion. Um, by definition, I can't forecast, but one mustn't assume the European Union will remain in its present form. And I, I can imagine relationships in Europe in, in which the European Union is a part and other people are part of wider connections. Rather, actually, what Macmillan was looking to achieve before he applied, before he applied to join. But I think any suggestion that we would rejoin the European Union as such is just going to set so many hairs running that it's it's not practical. That what we must be looking for is, is a different sort of relationship and see how it see how it goes. So optimism tempered with realism, that would be, I suppose, the, <laughs> the, 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 the good conservative uh, note on which to end. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed, Lord Oakenhardt. <laughs>